This morning, um, we are going to be looking at Acts chapter 2, if you have your Bibles, to follow along. Acts chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses 42 to the end of the chapter. Father, we are very thankful for your word, very thankful for this day, very thankful that we can gather together as your people in your presence, lift up your praises and call out to you and cry out to you with our prayers and requests, hear from you, and just commune with you in your presence. We're we're very thankful. Father, now we ask that you would use this word, your word, this morning and work in our hearts by your spirit. And we, we trust and know that you are faithful and your word does never, never does return void. It always goes out and accomplishes that which you've purposed for it. So we praise you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you realize there's no greater place to look in Scripture, if you were to look, for an example of what does a church look like that's on mission? If you want to ask the question, could you show me a church? Could you describe me a church that's actively on mission and what that looks like? You'd say, okay, yeah, turn to Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47, and you're going to see a description of a church that's truly alive and on mission. I can't think of a better, more descriptive place to go than this, because this truly is, this is the moment here in Acts chapter 2, what's happening is this, the church has just received the Spirit in Acts chapter 1, and Peter gets up, proclaims the gospel in the power of the Spirit in Jerusalem, and, th- and th- uh, 3,000 were added to their numbers that day. And those who believed, it says, they were baptized, and then it goes on here in, our, in Acts 2.42 to say this, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayers. So what I want us to look at this morning, and I want us to come away with, is like, what does this church look like? What does a church look like that's on mission for God? Well, the thing that I want us to notice in here, and that there's one word that really stands out. In 2.42, it's the word devoted. The church on mission is devoted. Now, this is an interesting word because it's, it's not just committed in the sense like, yeah, I have, a, I have a strong commitment to God's word, to prayer, to fellowship, to the breaking bread. It actually, it speaks about an intensity, a devotion that goes just beyond just committed to actual activity and conduct. The Greek word is actually very difficult to pronounce. Um, something like proskatereo, as if that matters. Yeah. I'll remember that one forever, right? It always cracks me up when preachers use the Greek because it's like, okay. (laughs) How's that help? But anyways, I guess it validates. I'm not making this up, right? And this is a compound verb consisting of pros, meaning toward, and katereo, meaning to be strong. Now, if you put those together, what do you think you have? You're being strong towards something. It means continuing steadfastly in a thing. 
giving unremitting care to it. According to the NAS New Testament Greek theological lexicon, prosketereo means to adhere to, to be devoted or constant to one, to be steadfastly attentive to, to give unremitting care to a thing, to persevere and to not faint, to be constant, to be in constant readiness for one, wait on constantly. So this is the kind of devotion, This you think of this word, this is the kind of devotion the church in Jerusalem gave to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Unremitting, constant, they wouldn't stop doing it. This wasn't a church that simply showed up on a Lord's Day and was faithfully committed to God's word, to fellowship, prayer, and the breaking of bread. They weren't just committed to quick devotionals in the morning. This was a church devoted. Now, and just to get a better idea of what this means, if you jump down in verse 46 of chapter 2, it says, And day by day they were attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. So, you want to know how devoted they were? Every single day they were going to the temple to prayer, They were going back to their homes, they were breaking bread in their homes, and they couldn't stop talking about the apostles' teaching. These these people were devoted, and, and he almost couldn't stop them from doing it. It would be easy for a church to think it was devoted simply because it has a high view of worship. It honors God's word, admits to the importance of fellowship, and argues for weekly communion. That church would say, hey, hey, guess what? We are devoted. We are devoted to these things as well. But that doesn't make the church a church devoted as it's used here. The word here has more to do with observing someone's life. And if you see someone going after something continually and always, they're just pressing in to do it, you would look at their lives and you say they're devoted. It's like that person who goes to the gym every day. You watch, they go to the gym the same time every day. They just, they're working out. They're doing, they're, you watch them. And what makes them why you would say they're devoted? They don't miss a day. <laughs> That's, you would never call someone, they did, if they showed up at the gym once a week, <laughs> you wouldn't say, Mike's devoted. <laughs> it's a, st- it's a, st- that's what you would say. You'd say, it's a start. Right? It's a start. Okay, that's good. That's good. But I wouldn't say you're devoted. Devotion, really, when you see it, you can tell it when you see it because there's this unremitting commitment to it. And the other thing we have to understand is that when it comes to this devotion, this isn't like a works-based devotion. They didn't think they were trying to gain something from God by doing it. They did it because they deeply loved God. They deeply knew how much God loved them how much he did for them in Christ Jesus. They just finished hearing the gospel. The fact that God has loved me in Jesus and forgives me and accepts me and unites me to himself and gives me his spirit and is communing with me and I'm in union with him. It's out of that reality that these people said, I, you know what, I just, I, I just want to talk about one thing. <laughs> I, just, I want to talk about God and how good he is. And I want to, and I want to do that with you. Let's all get together. There's their fellowship talking about. And then the, the, the apostles were teaching them and they, they were just, all they, they wanted to talk about what they were hearing and learning. 
And, and, and so they were, they were people devoted. And there's a great example of this and how, what this looks like and what this, the impact this has on mission. Now, I think this is the kind of devotion they had. Now, it has a dramatic impact, and it sends them on mission as well. Because people who are devoted like this are devoted to the call of God. You can even see through the rest of this, uh, these verses next too, how they, th- these people had, were having an impact, were having an impact by what they were doing. And I, I want us to see uh, through this, I'm going to read and give an example for you of a, of a pastor in a church who actually manifests what it's like to be devoted. And then as a result of this kind of devotion to Jesus, what happens as a result of it? This pastor's name's Craig Rochelle, and he said this in a, in a, a church, a church, yeah, he said this about church he planted in 1996. This comes out of that book, It, and a few of us have actually heard this before, the story. But it says, My wife Amy and I started a new church that's now called Life Church. In those early years, we didn't have anything most churches have and think are necessary. In fact, every, everything we had was junk. We met in a borrowed two-car garage that smelled just like a garage. On the first weekend of our new church, we experienced a rare Oklahoma snowstorm. I still remember the people huddling together to stay warm, wearing their winter hats and gloves for the entire service. Since I knew the importance of caring for children, we reserved the best facilities for those under five years of age. Our children met for children's church in a large storage closet. This gave a whole new meaning at the end of each service to the phrase coming out of the closet. We had one temperamental microphone and two borrowed speakers. We borrowed 75 green felt-back chairs from hell. And felt-back chairs are from hell and should be returned there as soon as possible. (laughs) The garage was so dark, we bought a floodlight from the hardware store for $19.99 to light it. This innovation worked great until one day the light exploded during a sermon. People thought terrorists were attacking and dove for cover. On a positive note, several people accepted Christ that day. And Edna May's counselors at the psychiatrist's hospital tells us she's doing much better now. We didn't want anything, uh, say we, sorry, we didn't have anything that most people think you need to have church. We didn't have a nice building. We didn't have our own office. We didn't have a church phone number, unless you count my home phone number. We didn't have a paid staff. We didn't have a logo. We didn't have a website. We didn't serve Starbucks. We didn't have sermon series with clever titles lifted from Baywatch episodes. (laughs) Thankfully. What we did have, and hear this, what we did have... We had a few people you could count on two hands, but those few people were off the charts excited about Jesus. We had enough Bibles to go around, and we had it. Whatever it was, everyone who came felt it. And they talked about it. And new people came and experienced it. And the church grew and grew, 
and lives were changed by the dozens, then by the hundreds, and then by the thousands. You see, just like in Acts 2, whenever you have a group of Christians come together, and these group of Christians are passionate and devoted to God, you have a church that's on mission. You have a church that's making an impact. This is a church that can't stop. They're devoted. But not only are they devoted, which we, ha- we need to see, this church was terribly devoted. What happens when you're devoted like this is that you also become attractive. And that's something else I want us to see here. The church wasn't just, detr- just devoted, it was also attractive. In Acts, if you look at Acts 2, 46 through 47, I just finished reading Acts 46, but look at the, what happens as a result. It says, at the end of verse 46, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, and listen to this, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. They have tremendous favor with all the people. The people of Jerusalem, they were gaining favor. And why do you think they're gaining favor? And then why do you think the Lord is adding to the number day by day those who are being saved? They were highly attractive. There's something, something about a church that is vibrant, alive, and zealous for the gospel. The church in Jerusalem here was clearly and passionately devoted to one another, to God most importantly, And as a result, they had favor with all the people. This is what seems to mark this church on mission. It isn't just that they were devoted, which is utterly important. It was that this devotion and love made them very attractive. This is why they were having favor with all the people, and the Lord was adding to them. Life, joy, and love permeating from a body of believers... It's always attractive. Always. It's attractive even in in a person, in one single person. Have you ever met somebody who's full of life, full of joy, just full of love, and it almost radiates out of them? If you ever met someone like that, they're just, they're, they're attractive by personality. The very fact that they're around and just like, like they're a beam of light. And it's just, we're, we're made by God to be attracted to that. It's like, that is, that's very attractive. But you realize that something even greater happens when you bring a group of people together who are like that. It's one thing if it's one person, but you know, realize that when you add people, it's not addition, it's multiplication. It's not two plus six, which equals eight. It's two times six, which equals twelve. There's something magical happens when a group of people come together, when the church gathers together, and they are highly devoted to God and love Him and love one another. These people, all of a sudden, they become very attractive. You know, I've been to many churches in my life, and I can always tell what the overarching spirit of that church is when I walk through the doors. It isn't long, and you get a really really good sense of what's going on. I'm sure most of you have as well, if you've went to other churches. And if a church is extremely intellectual, well, there will be an intellectual vibe all over the place. If the church is very traditional and it's proud of its traditions, 
You'll see it in its architecture, its pews, its hymnals, its organ, dress, and demeanor. It'd be all over the place. If a church is cold and dead, you can smell the embalming ointment as soon as you walk in. If a church is trying to crank it up, if a church is trying to generate emotion and, and, and trying to make everybody feel alive, you, you can tell right from the get-go it feels artificial and fake. If it's somewhat warm and inviting, then you know you have a few lovely saints that are really, that are really reaching out to others and you can tell it. And if it's genuinely loving, joyful, expectant, and filled with life, it's nothing short of beautiful. It's beautiful, it's attractive, and you can sense the moment you walk through the door that something special is there. Joseph Aldrich, in his book, Lifestyle Evangelism, said these words about the attractiveness of the church. He says, besides bringing redemption, Christ came to make visible, to reveal and to communicate the heart, the essence, the being of the invisible God. He was, as it were, a visual aid to reveal the nature of his Father. He didn't just talk about love. He loved, and the sinners considered him their friend. He didn't just preach on forgiveness. He forgave. And sinful, guilt-ridden people fell at his feet, forgiven and cleansed. He didn't just proclaim the necessity of justice and righteousness. He attacked the unrighteous institutions of his day. And his strategy was to become flesh and live among them. He goes on to say that the non-Christian needs a demonstration, a visual aid which reveals that the gospel is really good news. That it really does address itself to the deepest needs and motives of the human heart. This new awareness is music to him, beautiful music. Such exposure to incarnate truth helps prepare him to hear the words of the gospel. It's my belief that if the beauty, if the beauty of the body is not taken seriously, the cause of world evangelism is ultimately futile. End quote. Our beauty, or lack of beauty as a church, determines our attractiveness. And this beauty and this attractiveness comes from our devotion and love to God together with one another. And what happens? People can sense it. People can, people can see it. People know that here's a body of believers who truly love the Lord Jesus. And sometimes they think this love is so, can be so, there can be such a devotion, there can be so radical that people think you're absolutely crazy. But even though you're crazy, there's something attractive about it. But not only that, it's not just that the church on mission is devoted and because the devotion becomes attractive, there's something else I want us to see as well. That this church on mission is zealous. Now, this is, this is somewhat similar to devoted, but different. When a person is zealous, what come, zealous, zeal happens in the heart and, and, ex, and expresses itself, and one of the expressions is devotion. But if we go back from devotion and look at the heart of those who are devoted, one thing you will find is zeal. There will be zeal in the heart. 
And in order to understand this, in order to understand that truly what's happening at a heart level, what's going on here at Acts chapter 2, why is this church so the way it is, so on mission, so so wanting to reach out and extend itself to the to everybody around it, love and love outwards. Why is that? Because in the heart, there's a real true zeal for God. Now, in order to understand what this is really like, or what's happening in here, and when it goes away, what what is that like, and then what to do about it, we need. To, let's go over to Revelation chapter three, and we're going to look at the Church of Laodicea. Jesus himself speaks to the church of Laodicea in Revelation 3, 15 through 20. And this is what he says. I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and soft to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. What is fascinating here about this church in Laodicea is how they think they're doing so well. And their measuring stick for how well they're doing, do you realize what they're measuring themselves by? It's by their prosperity. This was a church that had it all. Their members had wealth, fine clothing, nice homes, and many of the comforts of life. In fact, as Jesus points out in verse 17, they thought they had need of nothing. We don't, we don't need anything. They were very comfortable and happy. But as Jesus makes clear, they were not hot and zealous for God. They were not hot and zealous for for the things of God. What they were hot and zealous for were the things of this world. And what made, and, and what this made them, according to Jesus, was wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. To which they surely would have responded, What do you mean, Jesus? How could you say that? Look at how you've blessed us. Look at all we have. And Jesus would have responded, as he did at the beginning of this rebuke, I know your works, and to me, they're simply blah. There's no passion, there's no zeal, there's no real love for God at all. And because of this, I'm on the outside looking in. That is why he said, behold, I stand at the door and knock. The the idea is that you guys are gathering on the inside, but I'm on the outside, knocking. Let me in. Thankfully, Jesus spelled out for them what repentance looks like. He tells this church that's lost its zeal, is not hot nor cold, just kind of blasé, just kind of just going along, going through the motions, but at the same time, very, very comfortable. 
And so that church that's in that place, he says, here, I'm going to rebuke you and reprove you because I rebuke and reprove all those I love. Now listen to my words. This is what you need to do. If you're to become zealous, if you're to have zeal, listen up. You need to get to the point where you're hot and not cold. He said that they were to buy from him gold refined in the fire, white garments, and salve for their eyes. And the reason he mentions these three elements is because they correspond with the things they were seeking in the world. They were investing their lives in this kind of thing. They were giving themselves to to pursuing worldly riches. They were giving themselves to go after fine clothing. They really got into that kind of stuff. And they were also into, into acquiring all kinds of ointments and sobs and perfumes for their body. And as they went after these things, you know what happens every single time? They went after these things and their hearts were growing cold towards God. They should have been pursuing, according to Jesus, the true and eternal gold, not the short-lived riches of this world. That's one thing that Jesus stresses. If you look at his ministry, one of the things he knows that man's tendency, our tendency, is to go after the things in this world, even the riches of this world. And we go after them, and all the, he's saying all you get is really a bunch of heartache and disappointment. The stock market goes up, and then it goes down. Your portfolio goes up, and it goes down. And here's the worst of it. You don't live that long, and at the end of it, it all, you've got to give it all away. You can't take a penny of it with you. It's so temporal. It's so short-lived. Yet he says, if you're going to go after riches, go after eternal riches. Invest in those things that, are, that last forever. Why would you invest in a bunch of Benjamins that decay and rot and go away, and when you can invest in a bunch of, eter- of gold that goes for, it lasts for eternity? If, you're, if you want eternal riches, go after eternal riches, the things, the riches of heaven. And likewise, he says with the garments, go after fine, white, eternal, glorious garment. Unlike the garments we wear in this life. Do you realize how quickly, if you like a garment, how quickly it gets threadbare and worn out? Don't you wish it would just remain so new and fresh and wouldn't decay? That's the problem with this world. It's constant, It's in a state of death, decaying. He says, I counsel you, buy for me this garment that will clothe you with eternal glory. Pursue the things that are eternal. And likewise, he says with the sov. He says with the sov. He says, buy for me the sov that you rub on your eyes. And it's not like the stuff that you guys do that you try to prevent wrinkles for a couple years. And then there they are still. He says, I've got some sov for your eyes that you could rub on it. And you, you would see things that are glorious and eternal. And so Jesus is trying to help them see there's no greater zeal killer than getting caught up in pursuing the riches, fashion, job promotion, looks, houses, or any other thing in this world. If one thing's for certain in this world is decay, isn't it? If one thing's for certain, it's uncertainty. If one thing's for certain, it's the temporal aspect of life. You're here today and gone tomorrow. And the scriptures were replete with this expression of the vaporous nature of life. Oh, you are but a shadow. You're like grass. 
The grass withers and the flowers fade. They come up, they go down, and it's done to be remembered no more. That's what this life is like. And the only way, and the thing in our hearts and in, in, in our souls, we long for eternity. And we're always trying to create eternity here and now, aren't we? We're always investing in the here and now. He says, that's, if you want to kill your zeal for God and the things of God, get caught up in the things here and now. If you want to have zeal for God and the things of God, get caught up in the things that are eternal. Get caught up in who you are in Christ. Get caught up in what Jesus has done for you. Get caught up in the, in the Lord of glory. Get caught up in the God who gives all things. Get caught up in the God who, who just longs to pour out goodness and blessing for eternity. You know, your work can be in vain when you do it for yourself. But if you can shift and begin to do your work for God unto his name, Lord, this is unto you as an act of worship, it now has eternal significance. Do you want to take away the vanity? Do you want to take away the shortness? Do you want to take away the the constant decay of what it is we're doing? Do it as unto the Lord, knowing that everything done unto him is not in vain. It's never in vain, but eternal. It's a change of heart and mind and direction. How is it easy is it for every single one of us here to get caught up in the world and the things in the world? And when you do, it robs your joy, it robs your zeal, it robs your heart for God. And yet it's so vain. It's so temporal. It's, it's so fleeting. So Jesus counsels them. He says, you guys are caught up in this world, and you really need to be caught up in God. How easy is it caught up in your work, caught up in your home, caught up in your finances, caught up in, in all your needs and wants and cares and concerns? How easy is it? Extremely easy. And I'll guarantee you, anybody who's caught up in that stuff is not caught up in God. Anybody who gets really zealous for the things in this life cannot be zealous for God. Because the heart cannot be divided like that. James warns against that. You cannot love God and love the world. It's impossible. Jesus says, where your treasure is, guess what? There your heart will be also. Where's your treasure? And Jesus counsels them and rebukes them and says, go after the things that are eternal. Go after God. You've got to put away these things and go after him. And what happens when there's a turning to God with our whole hearts? What happens when we focus our energy and our heart and our mind and attention on him is that a zeal for him begins to grow in our hearts. And I want us to see something here. I want us to, to go back to, this, to a story about, uh, that Craig Rochelle told in his book. And he gives another story of how everything started off and everything was great and they were, it was growing and they were on mission and having a great impact. And then I hear what happens because you realize that this is not, you know, you could be, you could be on, in, passionately pursuing God on mission for God. And then you could find that going away and you can drift away and go in the other direction. And he tells a story here about how this was happening um, in the ministry. And I think it's helpful to see and hear how this fleshes itself out and then see the impact, listen for the impact it has on ministry and mission. He says, even though I'd ever, I had never known what caused it, 
that it, this tremendous blessing of God amongst his people. I had always hoped we'd never lose it. And yet we were. Although some campuses, and now here he's at the point where they've had these multiple campuses, although some campuses unquestionably still had it, in other locations we had to admit that it seemed to have quit. That distinct spiritual hum, so obvious before, was harder to hear. The life-changing stories that were once a part of every discussion were fewer and farther between. Instead of passionately caring about people who didn't have Christ, members started to gripe about how the church wasn't all that they wanted it to be. Instead of people sacrificing for the cause of Christ, people appeared to be consuming, not contributing. In the past, I figured that if a church didn't have it, it was at least to some extent the leadership's fault. The elders must have been focused on, or been focused or passionate or pr- not have, sorry, must not have been focused or passionate or praying or something. Or the senior pastor hadn't cast a compelling Christ-focused vision, or he didn't preach hard enough, or wasn't inspiring people to become like Christ. Or the staff had gotten tired, bored, or lazy. Surely someone was to blame. Suddenly I had a problem. All of our campuses were under the same leadership. The buildings were similar, the worship pastors were unique, but had consistent styles. The kids' curriculum never varied from campus to campus. All were experiencing the exact same weekend teaching. But some campuses had it, and some didn't. Think about this. All of our buildings intentionally have a very similar look and feel. We work hard to cultivate exactly the same values, culture, and leadership on every campus. We hire all staff members through the same process. Each weekend, the people attending in one location hear the same message as the people at every other location. Sure, some of our campus pastors are better leaders than others. And ministering in different cities and states will certainly produce different results. Yet our itness apparently was randomly distributed from site to site. Some campuses had huge numbers of conversions, while others struggled to lead anyone to Christ. Those with many coming to Christ had more than enough volunteers. The others who were struggling to fill a quota, the, uh, sorry, the others were struggling to fill a quota. At the With It campuses, giving was growing. The Itless were financially stagnant. One campus tripled in size in one year, while growth in others was flat. Two grew to more than 2,000 in a year. That same year, one shrank. Guess which one got smaller? The one where I taught live and in person. End quote. So what was the difference between these campuses? Craig goes on to say that the ones who are effective were the ones, and the ones who are on missions, on mission, sorry, were the ones where their zeal and passion for Jesus was burning hot. And he began to notice, here's basically the fundamental difference. You got committed Christians, but you got Christians who are zealous for God. And then you got those who, who aren't. They've gone kind of cold. And wherever there's a zeal for Jesus and for his name and for his glory, there seemed like God by the Spirit was working mightily in their midst. And whenever there wasn't, it wasn't there. And what I like about this 
example is that it's, it's, there are so many things exactly the same. It allows us to see if things, all this is exactly the same. What's the difference in it? And that's what he was saying. What's, how could this be different? It's like you couldn't get more exactly the same. Yet here God was doing an amazing work. These people were on mission and going for it. Here, nada. And we have to see that you want to see a church on mission. You're going to have to see it. You will see a church that's zealous for God. Zealous for Jesus. Zealous for the gospel. But wherever you see zeal for God and for Jesus and for the gospel, dip, that church will will almost inevitably not be on mission. So, if we are to be a church on mission, what has to happen? Well, we can't be lukewarm, that's for sure. Because as Jesus mentioned, if you're lukewarm, and I think there's the main reason, where's he at? He's outside knocking at the door. And he says, you need to repent. You need to, you need to get hot. You repent and get hot. Turn to me with your whole heart, and I will gladly come into you. You come into my presence, and this will be amazing. Not only that, when the zeal, the heart changes towards God, what happens? We become devoted to the things of God. We become highly devoted. And then as a result of being zealous for God and devoted to the things of God, you know what we become? Very attractive. There you have a church that will be on mission, will be affecting the people around it. And it it just, you can't stop it. The gates of hell will not prevail against God's church, Christ's church. But I tell you, there's a lot of churches it seems like the gates of hell are prevailing. And, And... but whenever there's a group of people who are zealously passionate about God, devoted to him, and, and they become attractive, the gates of hell begin to shatter. So, what do we do? Here's the very first thing you have to do. And I'm going to repeat this, and this is kind of a central component throughout this whole series. You have to take everything in your heart, anything that's occupying space where God should be, any other love, any other concern, any other thing you're devoted to. What is it that you are passionate about and devoted to? Could you think of anything that you would be reluctant to surrender completely to God? (laughs) Well, if you can, that's the very thing that's hindering you from knowing the zeal and passion for God. Because... In our hearts, we can't have two loves. We can't split. We can't be divided. We can't love God, and we can't love the world. So the very first thing we must do is we must deal with these idols of the heart. We must come to God with our whole hearts and offer up everything to him and be completely surrendered and dedicated to him. And this is something that you have to do on a continual basis. This isn't something that you do here Sunday, today, say, and then, oh, I'm good to go. Just carry on in my week. No, you should every day, every morning, all the time, you have to take yourself and, and completely surrender yourself to God. You get up in the morning and you say, God, here I am. I am yours 100% completely. I, I lay everything before you. Take me. Have your way with me. All I want is you. 
You, you've got, you've got to do this continually. It's the way, it's a way of living. And this is the only way that you even truly worship God. So do you want to wake up? Do you want to be hot for God? Are you listening? Are you hearing from, from Jesus? Jesus says to his church, he says, he who has ears will hear what I'm saying. Do you want to? He says, he tells you what to do. Turn to me with your whole heart. Surrender everything to me. And I'll come to you. And he will revive you. And fill you. And strengthen you. And then you'll be devoted. Then you'll be attractive. Then you'll be on mission. May God grant us the grace, all of us, every single one of us, to continually be offering up ourselves wholly and completely to him. Amen. Father, would you grant us grace and mercy even now and expose in us, every person here, the idols in our heart, those things that we hold on to dearly, whether it be our jobs or our money or our family or our finances or or entertainment, or sports, or whatever it may be, whatever's in our hearts, O Lord, would you please reveal that to us? And grant us the grace to see the vanity of it, and to see what you're offering us, the life, the joy, the fulfillment that is in you. And may we, with our whole hearts, cast ourselves upon you, even now, O Lord, that you would fill us, and we become zealous for you, and your name, and your glory, and your kingdom. For we ask this in Christ. Amen.